You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Quill Lemons is the photographer and artist behind the incredible show Quilladelphia, an exhibition that captures the beautiful complexity of his own mind and showcases some of what it's like to move through the world as he does. His commercial accolades have included being the youngest person to photograph the cover of Vanity Fair, and he shot covers for WNID, but his perspective on things like queer black culture, the power of women as a source of inspiration, and knowing what it's like to create life as you want it to be are the real offerings set forth in this episode. Bearing witness to a mind still being formed as much by new experiences as it is the birthplace of new ideas. This is Quill Lemons, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. South Philadelphia, born and raised. Can you tell us a little bit about Quill Lemons before you arrived in New York? Quill Lemons before I arrived in New York is definitely a product of South Philadelphia. Well, I was moving between both South Philadelphia, Southwest Philadelphia, and Northeast Philadelphia. And then I went to school and downtown. So I was always like jumping between a lot of different neighborhoods and a lot of different people. My mom was 14 and a half when she gave birth to me. Oh, wow. And she is my rock and went on to have a master's in nursing and now runs a weight loss clinic. I have about 13 siblings from both mom and dad. And there are stepmom and stepdad, godmom and goddad, aunts. I have a really big family. Lots of family. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was a village of us and the best Brady Bunch way. I went to Julia R. Masterman. I think that was a really formative part of my adolescent years. And I then went on to the Charter High School for Architecture and Design. So art has always been something that's surrounded me, as well as my whole family is like really big into academia. Masterman was ranked 52 in the nation when I went there for middle school and the middle school kind of put you on track to go to the high school and like at least 30 of the 100 kids that were accepted into the high school go to Ivy Leagues with full rides. So it was a very competitive space, but also one that was full of really young, bright minds that were exploring the internet before people really started to commodify it. Mm -hmm. And I just remember my entire seventh grade year being on Tumblr and all of us picking different sexualities each day as we were just discovering who we are. It was such a free space, and I'm so happy I got to be that free at that age and not really be limited by things that were race, gender. Like, we all just accepted who we are as people and as, like, smart people. And any of the things that limited anyone in society, they didn't really into that space. It was always like a really fun free space where we all got to express ourselves in any way we chose. And I just think I kind of carried that on into my life. And it was the sensibility that I think that most people don't have. That was something I did want to touch on because I think it's obviously incredibly palpable today where you're accomplished and you've had a journey with self-discovery and self-exploration and all those things. But authenticity is something that you've championed since a young age. And I wasn't sure what the initial kind of place or source of your own sense of being authentic was because so many people struggle with it, not because they're afraid of being who they are and having rejection be a possibility as much as sometimes people just don't know who the hell they are. So how did you figure it out? I've always asked the question of like, why 
it was probably really annoying to raise me because I was never like I would be okay with what adults had to say, but secretly I'm just like I don't really care. Mm-hmm. And my mom kind of picked up on that, and she always kind of challenged me to explain why I was questioning things. And at a younger age, I probably would just be like, "Well, you're wrong," and I'm not going to really like get into why you're wrong because I just kind of knew that a lot of adults were silly and were limited in their own scope and. I knew my family, I was surrounded by really intelligent women. They were going against the grain by what society was saying about what Black women should be in every way, shape, and form, where they didn't depend on men. Or My grandma would always say, if you wait around for a man, you'll be waiting your whole life. And I like fully took that to heart. And I understood that the women, like my mom, my aunt, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother, they just did their own thing. Like I, I was just watching so many other women and just so many other people be bogged by being in Philadelphia, not having a lot of resources, not really seeing many success stories. Like my mom was 14 and a half and she was like, well, I'm still going to finish high school. I'm still going to be a nurse. I'm still going to do everything I wanted to do. It's just that now I have a kid with me. And that was really inspiring to me. And at the time I was in middle school, I was like, I have to have straight A's. And I also have to like figure this shit out for myself. And yeah, I think that really was it. It was more of, okay, how am I going to beat the odds? Mm -hmm. That's always been kind of my thing. Well, you've also talked in the past about finding female energy in women quite powerful. And at first I was curious as to why, but it sounds like that's the result of your upbringing and the strong archetypes you had all around you. I never really saw femininity as a weak thing. And I was always kind of attracted to female rage because my grandmother was obsessed with like horror movies. I remember like when she would babysit me, I would watch sci-fi with her all day. And like Jamie Lee Curtis and Sigourney Weaver became like these superheroes to me Mm -hmm. before like there was an Iron Man. There was Sigourney Weaver running away from the alien and also like whooping its ass. There was Jamie Lee Curtis like fighting Michael Myers every time she saw him. It was on site. Femininity never was this weak thing. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to college, I started to interact with white femininity. And that was so different. It's a little bit more fragile, but there was a power in the fragility. And I was like, this is like something that I know Black women wish they could access. Like the white female tear is so powerful and everyone's like oh my god we need help but i also watched black women never receive that help and like know that that help is not coming even if they were crying even if they were in pain and go oh i'm going to be my own savior and then i was watching things like eve's bayou and watching like journey smollett be always a black witch and seeing power in that so femininity was just so nuanced to me and masculinity was always just like sports <laughs> but also just the simple aspect of women kind of bring us into the world and that's such a powerful thing and we can't exist if women aren't here i couldn't agree more i've always found the female archetype to be far more inspiring when it comes to things like strength or power because to your point of you know distilling men down to sports, somewhat of that depiction was always sort of barbaric in comparison. Yeah, There was just a lot more inherited as well, which I think is less inspiring. And you also have kind of made this correlation that you've just mentioned between race and gender in the past when it comes to men and the sort of privilege that white men have had when it comes to self-expression, sexuality, and things in comparison to black men. So I wanted to talk about that because I am sure the answer is both. But when you 
say something like that, are you referring more to the sort of societal systems at large, or are you referring to the kind of rules of acceptance within the black community, or is it both? Both of them, like B O F F U M, because back to the younger upbringing when I was in that space. Not to say that we weren't aware of our race, because it was very clear that like I was one of maybe 24 black kids out of the 200 that were in my grade. And we Mm -hmm. knew that. Like Everyone was aware of that. But race wasn't as heavy because none of us had the lived experience of racism. Mm -hmm. And we were interacting with only each other and we were 12 and everyone was just human and we just accepted our differences. But as we started getting older... Access to fashion was the first thing that I realized that like white guys got to wear whatever they wanted. And I had to code switch to be valid in certain spaces. And that started off by just like, if I wanted to hang out with the boys, I had to be cool and wear Jordans and like know about sneaker culture in that way. And then when I got to college, I went to the new school. And after like going through high school, and switching to a predominantly black high school. The first questions when I entered there in ninth grade were like, how are you so into fashion? And that then equally then switched into the conversation of, oh, he must be gay. Cause like he knows so much about fashion. I definitely knew I was gay at the time, but I was like, those two things still didn't make that much sense to me. Cause I was just like, I could be fashionable and I could be straight. But then I started to understand that because there was this language that surrounded black masculinity of being hyper, of being aggressive, that me being into fashion didn't fit into that ideology. And so then I had to be gay to access things that were considered feminine, considered other, like other just didn't assume the position of homosexuality, which to me made no sense. But in the Philadelphian understanding, I like kind of got it. And so then I was always really good at code switching. And like then that's where sneaker culture then kind of became a protection and almost like a masking of like my deeper homosexual desires. And I don't even know if it was like something that I really thwarted off much. It was just like, oh, he has on Jordan, so he's cool. Like even if he is a little funny. And that kind of was the understanding there. Mm -hmm. And then as I got older, it's just that there are a lot more nuanced understandings of white manhood or like white masculinity than there are black masculinity. And a lot more freedoms that come with those nuances to just anyone existing. And I was just kind of sick of it, sick of being limited in scope. And then at the time, because I'm like entering the Kanye West School of Education, especially when it comes to fashion, I understand what he was fighting for. And when he's like pink ass polos in a fucking backpack. And I'm like, yeah, you should be able to do that <laughs> and still be valid and be masculine and be in these spaces that were traditionally masculine and show up as anything you wanted to be as a black man. But if you started exploring outside of that, yeah, it started to become gay. And it was just, that was such a very, that was such a limited thing. And I'm so happy that now we're in like 2023 and you can have someone like Playboy Cardi exist. You can have someone like Uzi exist. But we fought for so much space, so much to occupy the spaces and be like alt. Because like 10 years ago, I would have been considered like alt black, which is so funny. And now it's just like, oh, wait, no, you're just like a black guy that likes Rick Owens. Like you're a black guy that likes 
fashion and like before you'd be like oh you're weird like you're like alternative and it's like i don't know <laughs> if that's necessarily what's going on here or in the hood they would go oh like you're a white boy and i'm like what does that mean and like oh it's because you're wearing certain things that just wasn't kosher in the hood yet and the way i spoke because i was at masterman people would always be like oh you speak so properly and then i go into white space and they're like hmm you slur some of your words and it's like oh fuck where do i exist in a space to just be like understood and then i stopped kind of asking for it and just kept showing up as who i was and clearly that's worked right i mean look at your show quilladelphia yeah it's a perfect segue because you've taken people who were kind of in the margins and you've put them center stage and without being reductive and kind of getting you to be literal about everything how did you go about sort of seeking to change the entrenched notions of black masculinity or family or queerness or race and beauty through this work? Well, it started before Philadelphia. Everyone knows me kind of for Glitter Boy, which is of course, behind yeah. me currently, mm -hmm. which is like really fun to have in my house right now. But people know me for that. And that kind of started the conversation that black masculinity wasn't this monolithic thing. <laughs> and by having my entire sexuality and presentation, all of this explanation placed on me. I was like saying in 2017 that that felt like a prison. So that began the language of Philadelphia or like the first thoughts that of exploring what it could look like in it being black masculinity, what that would look like if it was free. Those are like the first like teasings at it. Philadelphia is that same language, but it's just a bit more mature. And then we're like bringing in the conversations of like desire we're bringing in intimacy, we're bringing in homosexuality, bringing in sexuality, we're bringing in everything. We're looking at the kaleidoscope and we're looking at masculinity through my like black queer lens. And it's like everything that I do touch. And it's just a through line. And I think Philadelphia is you guys meeting my queer family because I was known a lot for shooting my like biological family. And I was like, mm -hmm. this is really nice. But one thing I wanted to do with my work and like the world that I am building is merge all of those things because you don't really get to see someone be openly black and queer and have the sexuality aspect. Of, it's not just like, oh, Quill's my black gay friend. Cool, we stop, like period. Like, no, he's my black gay friend. He's openly queer. He's kissing boys. He's having sex with boys. He's falling in love with boys. And that's valid. Because I think for so long, being gay was like, oh, no one's going to talk about what we do outside of like gay space mm -hmm. and outside of the conversation of like me speaking to someone else who is queer that understands the experience. And I was like, well, I am going to speak to my community with this show, but I'm also going to make everyone that is a viewer of my art then come into the space and really start to understand what it is to live life at this intersection. And there's a lot of pain, but then there's a lot of beauty in that pain because it's resilience and like being able to walk this life. And I just got tired of like the idea of being like the gay bestie or like the gay sidekick. Like, no, I am the main character here. I was really interested in that because for so long, no one wanted to have these conversations. And I was like, these are all conversations I'm having on a day-to-day -day basis with my queer friends. Mm -hmm. It's also really interesting to hear the take on exploring all these things through the lens of Black queer culture specifically, because I feel like it's been such a source of reference and cultural wealth. Oh, for everything. For the, Look at Renaissance. For everything. 
Absolutely. And ironically, people don't always realize what they're referencing or what it is they're inheriting or what it is oh, they're tapping language into. language is like inherently <laughs> black and queer right now. Exactly. Like I'm just thinking yeah. about like, oh, she ate or like you're mm-hmm. reading or you're serving. Like everything mm-hmm. is coming from black queer culture. And that's why I really wanted to center myself and everyone that looks like me, because I just feel like we don't really get celebrated until we're dead or like until we're not here and everyone's grieving. Like, oh my God, this person was so special. I'm like, but did you tell them that when they were like here and like going through this existence? It's not super easy. And I think that's the other thing too, is that everyone looks at me as someone like, oh, he's successful. His life must be great. And it's like, yes, it is. But it also isn't one that's easy. Like I go put on a skirt and walk around Brooklyn and people will give me the craziest of looks for just wearing a skirt. That makes no sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really understand how that's still a thing. I feel like in New York, you would think we would live in a bubble, but you're saying that even in Brooklyn, that bubble's not always there, you know, when you no. leave the house in a skirt. <laughs> I even thought so. When I first went to Paris, I was making some clothes with Sky High Farm and I'm walking around in this like little Prada court and Okay, so in envisioning Paris, especially through James Baldwin's lens, you would have thought this would have been the land of the free. Like everyone gets to go over here and be a, like um, a free black fag. And no one's asking you a question. You're just kissing boys on the street and it's fine. No. <laughs> like four boys came up to me and like grabbed my skirt. And I'm just like, what is going on? And it was like very eye-opening to know that like, oh, okay, like, no matter where I go, I'm still going to be Black. I'm still going to be a fag. I'm still going to be other. But I'm not going to stop being myself. And even in that moment, it's just like, okay, well, I guess I'm about to have to knock someone's head off. It's like we're back to square one. And it's very much the same way I was treated at an early age being queer in Philadelphia, where I had to, like, really fight to exist. You would think after so many years that that fight would be over. And it's not. And I'm like, oh, well, then welcome to living in my body every day. That's another thing that's incredibly prominent in this work for Quilladelphia is that it goes beyond the notion of sexual orientation and into explicit sexuality, right? Yeah. You even included sex workers in the people who are featured in the show. And that's a conversation that's been happening more frequently around the idea of that becoming something that's legalized. And I wanted to talk about your sort of stance on where you think we are as a culture in modern day as far as sex positivity and our relationship to sex in general? Well, speaking to working with the boys that were only fans, I was really adamant about that because I knew that the images that I was taking were going to start to enter the context in the conversation of the museum, of the gallery, and they are equally as important to gay culture, to visual culture, as I am. And I was like, if I'm going to enter those walls, they need to come with me. Because I don't think I would be able to exist or make this work. Like, literally, I wouldn't be able to make the work if they weren't part of the conversation. And I just really wanted to honor and validate their experience. In speaking to them, there are still a lot of people that try to shame them for what they're doing. But at the same time, Every queer person is probably watching these people perform. And historically, porn has been a space of communion. Like how we even find each other and identify and learn how sex even works. So it's just reductive to not include them in the conversation when it comes to historically documenting queer bodies. I was like, this has to be done. I think the OnlyFans boys changed porn. 
as a whole. Like we now interact with it on a day-to-day basis with it intertwining with Instagram and Twitter. And I think it made it less taboo. It made it less stigmatized. And they have to bear the brunt and be martyrs in a way. But I think it made nudity even less damning in like the American context. I think about 10 years back, if your nudes were to leak, that could have been a death career sentence. Making. For some, I'm just kidding. Could, oh, <laughs> career making for some, but also yeah. some people like took their lives if their nudes were leaked mm, because it would no, mean it would be hard for them to be hired. And I'm just happy that they changed that entire conversation and were so open about it and were sex positive in their lives because I think a lot of people have a lot of shame around sex due to what happened in the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of shame was then placed onto the queer body. And it's like shout out to One Condoms, One Prep, and then also where we are with medicine and like AIDS is not a death sentence anymore. With that conversation beginning to change, it allowed people to just be seen as human. They made contracting a virus that at one point could have killed you. And now it's not the same thing. I think it made it a little bit easier for those people that live that life mm-hmm. as people who are openly positive. And it made them not be ostracized. And it was just so crazy to me. Like, we're already gay. So why would you then make someone feel even more other for something that they didn't even really choose? Like, HIV doesn't choose. Like, you you don't, I'm pretty sure no one goes, yeah, I'm just going to go get HIV. And it just was like, I don't know. I just, I wanted to change a lot of those conversations. And then I attribute a lot of me being radical in that dialogue to someone like Oliver Sim, who came out as positive. And when shooting him and meeting him, it helped me understand that one, it could be a possibility for anyone who is gay and it wouldn't change anything. You're still a human and you're still Mm -hmm. like valid. And I just really shout out to him for being so brave to do that. And I don't even know if it's really bravery. Like, I was just going to say, (laughs) shout out to him for just being human and Mm -hmm. being vulnerable. Do you feel like that stigma is getting better, though, in terms of people's status and how it's perceived or what box they end up being put in? I think so. I think Mm -hmm. so. And I think that, like, for me, I'm someone who is HIV negative, but I don't think I would have as many hangups if my partner was positive mm-hmm. because there's an open dialogue around it and undetectable is a thing mm-hmm. and it's just like if we keep bringing more awareness to that then those people who are living uh, life as a positive person they don't have to live one of shame they don't have to live one of feeling then again other especially by their own community absolutely And I'm just so happy to be in this moment and be surrounded by a lot of people that share a like-mindedness of the sentiment that I'm speaking to. Because I just wanted to surround myself with people that are just loving. And I think that we all should, because it's it's a really hard world. And I don't know why we're so critical of each other. I just really changed my perspective in the past year. And I think it was just really nice to become that radically queer. And just being accepting and not judgmental of anyone's experience. It's incredible to listen to you speak with such clarity on all these things and such a sense of self-possession at such a young age. And I think this conversation is really important to be had because there are still people out there, including my own friends, who are undetectable, but will never divulge that because they have such shame around that status and what it might mean to people in their lives or how it could affect their professional career. And just the idea that anyone has to move through the world at this particular time 
knowing what we know and having access to the education that we do, it's heartbreaking. You know, it, it's yeah. horrible to think that people still have to live that way. So hearing you be able to speak to this and put out work like what you've done with Philadelphia, I just think is not only an inspiring thing to see, but it's also incredibly important. The funniest thing is that this is the first time I probably spoke about it because I'm still developing my own language around it. And I'm like, even in talking about it, I'm like, fuck, I need to like be more eloquent when speaking about it because it is something that I just truly believe in. Mm -hmm. I really want to hammer down that messaging because when you look at the statistics of HIV diagnosis, it's one in two black queer men, one in four Latino, one in eight white. So if this is a possibility, why are we not trying to get rid of the stigma and like change the conversation around it and making one that's more healthy? My mom is also a nurse. So these were things that like I was educated on as soon as it was aware that I was queer. And I don't know if that was like a healthy way to go about it because I was so young. <laughs> but I do appreciate her openness to the conversation around me being queer. Not that I wasn't ready for it. I just hate when a young person is like, I'm queer and people are like, oh, well, you should be safe. You should be saying that to anyone. Because I'm just mm -hmm. like, anyone can be diagnosed with HIV or AIDS at this point. And the statistics are out there. It's everyone that's having sex. You should just do your best to protect yourself. And then on the other side of that, I think people look at the diagnosis of being positive as a mistake. And it's like, no, that's such a such a damning thing to say. And it then makes the diagnosis something so vile. And it's like, no, it's just like, well, now you just have to take some medicine every day. I wish we would just get to that point and not be so judgmental. I don't know. I just want to bring a lot of awareness to that conversation because I think there's so much shame that surrounds it. And I'm just like, no, <laughs> we shouldn't be so shameful. Well said. You have such an incredible, I mean, essentially everything, a storyline, uh, a career, a sense of self, a point of view, a level of ambition and curiosity and dedication to creating work that you want to last and exist in the world beyond yourself. And I think well, I, I, I go back to like the historical rhetoric where silence equal death. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like in making this work, I got to meet a lot of queer photographers that are no longer here. And I wish they were here. And I did a lot of grieving in that process. And it really makes me emotional because I just know that God, like if it was 10 years later, they would be here. And they would have been able to live full lives like Peter Hedjoir, like David. It's just so many people that I'm just like, fuck, like this could have been me if I was born a decade before. Mm -hmm. And I just really want to honor their existence and continue on the language that they gave their lives for. And it's like making me tear up a bit. But yeah, I don't even know these people, but I just know that we would have shared the similar sensibility to life. And I know how hard they fought to be seen. And I really wanted to continue that work on because it's just vital to existence. And I just know that a lot of people try to ignore our humanity and they only see the sex part of it. And I don't want you to ignore the sex because it's a really beautiful thing. But I also want you to feel like the love, the intimacy, the longing for romance, the longing for life. And the fact that I get to live a full life is because there are so many people that didn't. I didn't want to be afraid. I didn't want to have shame when it came to making this work because I just know that it validates so many people that are here that don't feel like they get to have a full existence. And I'm, I'm privileged enough to be in a space that is safe for me to make this work, but I'm still constantly fighting. I feel like 
based on everything that we've seen in terms of people who've had the chance to go and see the show? The answer is, of course, yes. But as the artist behind the work, do you feel like it's accomplished those goals? Have you had that sort of feedback where people have really had those aha moments or some type of cathartic experience as a result of you shedding light on these types of imagery and ideas? Yes, it was really interesting making it because for the first time I was making work that I felt happy about. I really stand by a lot of my, like all of my editorial work and my commercial work that you guys have seen. But this was the first work that was for no one else but me. And this was work that I really wish I could have made even younger. And it was nice to like give this work to my younger self who needed someone like me to exist and to be black and be this queer. And in making it, I remember telling my like PR team and my manager, I have to go for it, even if it is shit that fucking scares me. Because I then thought people were going to be like, oh, Quill is about to burst into flames or Quill possibly has HIV or like all of those things where they're going to be placed upon me because I wanted to make work that was this radical to some. I don't even think it's that radical to anyone that's queer. I think most queer people will go into the space and go, hmm. <laughs> like this is a normal Tuesday. But I was like, well, I can't be pussy about it because you just see so much co-opting of this queer experience and then see it be commercialized. And then you see capitalism then come into play and you look on the cover of Vogue and there's a man in a skirt, but he's never really been called a faggot, like in a violent way where you're then questioning, is this person trying to kill me? Then I was like, I'm not going to be a pussy about this because I just know that you don't live this experience. You're not really about it. Like I, I suck dick. I like take dick. I <laughs> have sex with men and it's <laughs> all the good so, things. Yeah. <laughs> and all the fun stuff about it. But I also in that moment then realized being queer was taking the bull by the horns and like making my life my own thing. Like it doesn't have to be prescribed to me. I get to choose. And I feel like that's the best part about being queer is the choice to like, I don't have a nine to five. I don't have to do that structure. I can make a living doing whatever I want, but I see people get indoctrinated into this narrative of, oh, I need to go to work. I need to go do these things. I need to have kids by this point. And I know every queer person is just doing whatever the fuck they want on a fucking Friday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was like a really fun moment to like realize like, oh, I'm 26. I've created this entire life for myself. So why do I have any fears? Because whatever. And then in sharing the work, I started to like then feel shame because I was like, oh shit. I was kind of nervous that my family was going to be not as accepting of the body of work because it is so outside of their bubble. And I grew up pretty Christian on my mom's side and really Muslim on my dad's side. And so it was a family full of religion. But they came to the show and he loved it. And he loved that. Like, oh, wow. They loved where I'm at in my journey as a person and that I am unafraid and I don't give a fuck what anyone has to say about what I'm doing with my life because it's my own. That was my next question. Being on the other side of producing this incredible body of work and putting it out into the world, do you feel differently than you did at the onset of that process before this project grew legs? I knew in going to the work, I had some balls. And I, I think I'm a pretty ballsy person, but now I'm just like, okay, my balls are pretty big. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> that was really nice to know. I really pushed myself to be vulnerable and I think that, like, that's the whole point of being an artist. And I see so many other artists get delulu by the capitalist aspect of it. <laughs> first of all, the work is selling. Like, I'll say that first and foremost. So I think that's a really important part of and being an artist. the show's also been extended, right? 
the show is extended to the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And in that, it just shows the power of one vulnerability, but two, erotica, and then three, what it means to just be yourself. Because everyone was like, oh, are you sure? Like, this could be hard to sell. And then to watch it sell and then be bought by, like, one of my favorite artists, Micheline Thomas, she bought the first two. And just to watch my community, again, support the thing that I was doing was really gratifying. And also, I'm just like, let's take it to another level. Let's keep going. I just know that then other queer people that aren't having their balls on the wall or like tied up in bondage get to just go outside and exist and be valid in that and not have people try to kill them. And you also mentioned earlier the reference to the commercial work where you've also had incredible success. Yeah. From being the youngest person to ever photograph the cover of Vanity Fair and obviously your work with W and ID and and other things in the fashion space. How does that process differ? Is it a different part of yourself? Is it just a different process in creating the work? Or how do you compare those things or those spaces? It's a little bit different in creating work, but it's also nice to like infiltrate those spaces that have been like historically white and then come in and just be my full self and like show up. And like, let them all digest that. Like, okay, yeah, you know me for my W stuff, but then as soon as you start doing the deep dive and then you go see what I'm doing in the fine art space and see me existing there. And then you go see what I'm doing for like Calvin Klein in the commercial space. And it's like, yeah, watch me do all of these spaces because there is no limitations on my creativity and where my art could go. For a long time as an artist, you had to wait for each space to be like, okay, now's your time. I'm not asking. I'm just showing up. And you have to respect that. And then also then respect the work because it is good. Like I hate sometimes where they put, oh, Black queer artists in front of it. Just say I'm a photographer. People are going to (laughs) know what I'm about by looking at the work and then also looking at me. It's so true. And you've also said in the past something along the lines of resenting the notion that new photographers should be referenced as emerging or upcoming and recognizing that the contributions you're able to make are uniquely valuable in a way that differentiates them from perhaps more established voices. So as someone who kind of avoids labels in general, if you even think about the roles you play in terms of being a collaborator on a certain brand sides or being in front of the camera and being the talent yourself, What kind of rules do you think have changed in the industry that you're very much a part of today, just in terms of things like that? So in being a part of the new Black Vanguard, it was really nice because we kind of changed fashion. And Mm -hmm. it's crazy to say, because that sounds so large, but we allowed Black people to one be behind the camera and in front of it. And that is such a different experience. You ask anyone that's been shot by any one of the 15 of us in that book, and it's like, oh my God, this is the first time I've been shot by a a black photographer. And it's fucking crazy to say, like, I remember in shooting Naomi Campbell, she was like, there's been a handful of times in my career that when I'm on set, the person behind the camera was a black person. And it's one of the greatest supermodels to exist ever. And it's like, that's such a humbling moment but one that like, I'm just like, wow, we're really changing this entire industry. And in that, there's a lot of pushback that happens where people don't want us to be in the spaces that we're in and think that, hmm, these kids are just coming in here because they're using their identity. And it's like, 
<laughs> like, bro, we're not using our identity. We're just, we're just black. And that's, I guess, a new thing for people. <laughs> I think we're all very aware of how everything used to work before we were in the space. And it's like, I know when it comes to picking my teams, I want to work with black people, but I also want to work with the best people. And in that, again, working with great black people, but I think we are just really open in the dialogue of who we're working with. It's not like this bureaucracy. Like anytime I'm working with anyone on my set, it's a very collaborative experience. I'm like, well, this is my idea, but please bring something to the table. I'm not trying to work with you if you're just going to like, I'm not going to prescribe everything to you. I'm actively, mm -hmm. I'm working with you because I really like your work and I like your perspective and you will make mine better. And when it comes down to it, it's such an open process for me where like everyone has a voice. And I think that's why, like when you see me working with someone from hair, makeup, subject, all of the things, they're really excited to share the images. It is not something where they're just like, I just showed up. Like, no, we give our all. And it's like really nice because the other part I think we are aware of is that we have to take every opportunity and go 150% because this could be the only opportunity we get for who knows. The industry could be like, you know, no more black people. That's not the thing anymore. It's not in fashion. Almost every time I pick up the camera, it's like, give it your all because you never know what's going to happen. The industry could be like, no, black people aren't in it anymore. And I'm like, not as fearful of that because I know what my CV says. <laughs> so it's just like, cool, cool, cool. But I also know what it is to just be a black person. The expectation is always up here. And I want to meet that and go higher. And I just see a lot of times where white mediocrity is praised and then black contributions aren't even really celebrated. And in that, I then go out of my way to celebrate other black creators for their contributions to the thing that I'm doing, because I just know what it is to be on both sides of that camera and also just existing in this landscape where people don't really give us our flowers. One thing I did want to ask you is this idea that you've always created your own reality. Everything we've talked about today, I think, are perfect examples of how that's manifested. But given how popular the idea of creating our own reality really is in culture today, what is the method? What's the secret sauce for how you've gone about doing that so successfully? <laughs> Jokingly, my friends keep telling me I need to figure out if I'm on a spectrum <laughs> because I... Are we all? I definitely know I'm on the, the Kinsey scale for sure. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't know. I kind of question sometimes in my divergent, like neural divergent, because I don't process a lot of things in a normal way. Like I was in the lawn and they were being completely racist. And I was just like, what do you mean you're closed? Because it's like, what they I'm like, I want to eat something. And I'm just like, okay. And then like, my friend is like, no, they were being racist. I was like, oh, like, I just like, sometimes like, am blissfully unaware of negativity <laughs> and I just do my own thing. Like I am sometimes very goal oriented that I can't, like a no is never really a no. I'm just going to figure out my way around it. And I'm never really, I don't really like authority. And I haven't mm. really liked that from a young age. So it's just mm -hmm. like, there's never really a no. There's just someone in the way <laughs> or it's like a hurdle. And I feel like as a person, I've overcome every obstacle it is for me to be at this point. I saw a meme that was like, to be successful, you have to be somewhat delusional. <laughs> I just go for things. I don't really, I feel like it goes against everything that the world was telling me, especially being black and queer. We're like, oh, this world isn't for you. And I'm just like, 
why? <laughs> okay, I'm just going to create my own world and live in that because what y'all are doing is clearly not working for anyone. So I'm just going to figure out how to make this shit work for me. I feel like what you just said is the perfect answer to this last and final question, but I have to ask it anyway. What do you think is contemporary now? I'm a person that's always imagining a Black future where we live in a utopia and there is peace and harmony. And I don't know, I think that we're so far away from it. And I get nervous that maybe that's just an idealistic dream. But then I like understand like every philosophical thinker is kind of imagining that and asking those questions of like, how do we do this in a way? And then I started reading like the idea of queer communism came up to me. And I was like, oh my God, to live on a farm with nothing like gay boys, we grow our own food and no one else is bothering us. Amazing. Cause it would just be really fun. And I guess what's contemporary now is still what's to come. Cause I'm just like, think about a future where no one's in pain. And I think the world is in pain and you see blips and moments from like art and culture where it's like, imagine where we didn't have to deal with this. And I'm like, we don't. <laughs> and I think that's the, the the dream that every dreamer is dreaming is just like, no bills. <laughs> we just live and exist in the land where no one is killing. No one is fighting. You just get to enjoy the 70, 80 years that you get here. I feel like even in the in making of my project, I started to understand time in a very different way where it's not linear. And it's like, what's contemporary now could also be what's happened in the past. And it's just like, I think uh, the short answer is just like, maybe it's utopia where in the idealistic sense of that word. I'm here I think for that's, it. That's what's contemporary now. Because anything else is what we're dealing with. And I don't know if that's contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> Blessed be. I can honestly talk to you forever. I'm so stoked that we were able to do this. Same. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes, and for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary, or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com.